me first of all say a big thank you to all of you for giving me your precious time and for inviting me to this platform. Coming to this university, which is now absorbed the university that I was part of, is a great privilege. Even though I joined government some 29 years ago when we became a democracy, it's always such a treat to come and interact with colleagues at the university, academics and students. And coming here is also a bit nostalgic because we were students during the very difficult days of our struggle. We were not part of this campus. We were part of another campus that rightfully was merged into one institution. But it was those difficult days of struggle that shaped us. I am today what I am because of the institution that shaped me and nourished me and educated me and provided me with the proper set of values to work side by side with all those of us, many of whom sacrificed, some of whom lost their lives, so that we all can enjoy the freedom we enjoy today and sit in this hall where many, many years ago we couldn't even set foot in. And I think we should always remember the great sacrifice made by our leaders and the role of this institution in shaping and molding the kind of leadership that was produced to lead us into our liberation and freedom. So, Prof. Uh, Ms. Zondo, thank you for having me here this morning. To my dear colleague, Prof. Uh, Sarah Motsetswa, who so ably leads the BRICS Think Tank Council since its inception. She has provided leadership and guidance and direction to make it the dynamic uh, forum that it is, including the BRICS Academic Forum. Uh, Prof. Nshlanchlam Kize, thank you for inviting us uh, to your institution. To my good friend, Professor Gopal, thank you for having me here. As I said, I've been fortunate in being nourished by this university, and so have my wife and children. We are all graduates. My wife spent 20 years lecturing at UDW. My two daughters uh, once got a PhD yeah, in, as, at the business school, and my Elder daughter is a graduate of the Mandela School of Medicine. So our entire family has been very grateful to what this institution has done for us. Now coming specifically to BRICS, I am going to share with you some insights uh, in terms of why BRICS is important, why it's relevant to South Africa, why it's relevant to all of us, and why we should take notice of what is happening within our soil in a matter of three weeks' time when President Ramaphosa will welcome the BRICS leaders and convene the 15 BRICS summit. Now, I have about 30 minutes, I'm told. Uh, my wife always say I talk too much and, and I should be careful of time. But I will try to condense what I want to say within 30 minutes so that we have some time for interaction. And I've structured my presentation into three focus areas. Firstly, the environment that necessitated the creation of a formation like BRICS. Secondly, the evolution of BRICS over these past 15 years. And thirdly, our chairship and the way forward in terms of, of how we see BRICS evolving within the current geopolitical space. 
Now, if you look at the current global order, we are living in a most challenging time, perhaps the most challenging period post the end of the Cold War. And that's precipitated by a number of factors. Of course, COVID, the COVID pandemic brought to the fore not the opportunity for the global community to work together, which is what we expected, but we saw just how stratified and selfish the global community is in terms of how they related to the pandemic, especially the countries of the global north where you had vaccine nationalism, vaccine apartheid, vaccine hoarding, uh, the African continent and the global south, we were left to our own means. Because this overriding view that the life of people living in the global south is much cheaper and not as treasured as those living in the global north. Now, if you look at the current so-called Western-dominated liberal order that was created post the Second World War, that order still exists today. And yet the world has transformed dramatically from the world of 1945 to the world we currently live in. It's a total different reality. But what do we see? We still see the marginalization of the African continent and the marginalization of the global south. We are still outliers. We are not part of the main table, even though the world has transformed. Now, if you look at what has transpired over these past several decades, you had the creation of the United Nations system, Rightfully so, it was created because we wanted a rules-based international order where every country of the world, small or big, powerful or weak, had an equal say around the table within the General Assembly. We created this body in 1945. We created financial institutions. The Bretton Woods institutions were created, the World Bank and the IMF, towards the end of the Second World War, specifically to address a need a need of the reconstruction of the global West because the Second World War devastated Europe more than anyone else. It was a war that started in Europe and drew the whole world into it and the devastation was caused by those that started the Second World War as did the First World War. So you created financial institutions to address the challenges in terms of, of providing finances for the reconstruction, the Marshall Plan and so forth. You then created, a few years later, the general system uh, of tariffs and trade, the GATT, which was the forerunner to the World Trade Organization, which transformed uh, in 1995 to the World Trade Organization to facilitate global trade. So you put in place, including the International Court of Justice when the United Nations was founded, you put in place structures to give certainty to a world that is governed by certain rules and regulations by international law. But of course, we were all not party to this. In 1945, when the UN was formed, nearly all of Africa was still under colonial rule. The major part of Latin America and Asia was under colonial rule. When the Bretton Woods institution were formed, there were 27 countries around the table in the, in the city of Bretton Woods in New Hampshire to form this institution and therefore it's still dominated by the Europeans and the Americans who were the, the creators and the architects of this financial architecture. When the GATT was created, again you had a small number of countries coming together to facilitate trade, firstly amongst themselves because they dominated global trade. So this architecture was created by a set group of countries that determined how the world should run. 
in terms of the geopolitical architecture, the security architecture, including the UNSC, the financial architecture, the Bretton Woods World Bank structure, and the global trade architecture through your GATT World Trade Organization. And over the years, they continued to assert their authority even though we became independent. And as we gained independence within Africa, and as recently as 1963, we just celebrated the 60th anniversary of the founding of the OAU slash AU. At the time of the founding of the OAU, there were only 32 African countries that were sovereign states. That's within our lifetime. Well, at least my lifetime, not, not yours. But in that, in that period, you can see that we had to break out of the yoke of firstly slavery, several hundred years of abuse, then colonialism, and then still imperialism that continued to dominate the Western dominated global architecture. Then in 1975, as a result of the Arab-Israeli war and the financial and economic crisis that resulted, the major economies of the world, your so-called G7, came together, and you created a structure called the G7. In 1975, when it was founded, it was G6. The following year, Canada joined and became the G7. Your G7, which is almost 50 years old, took it upon themselves to determine what is best for the global community. So the global community, despite having a United Nations system, was dominated by what the G7 decided. And in 1997, they decided to bring Russia in, it became a G8. Now during this time also, as we emerged out of colonialism, became independent states, we slowly started finding our feet. We didn't have the luxury of getting the kind of assistance that Europe got as a result of the Marshall Plan. We didn't have that luxury. The kind of development aid that we got was tied aid. Didn't come without strings. And it was not the kind of aid that allowed us to grow and develop as sovereign independent states to make decisions for ourselves. But what you started seeing is a slow evolution from within the global south and the rise of the global south. China, after the civil war that brought, brought the Communist Party to power in 1949 and the CPC came to power, had a few difficult decades in terms of finding its foot. You had the Cultural Revolution under Mao that devastated the country. And it was only in 1978 under Deng Xiaoping that you had the reform and opening up of China. Post-1978, for the major part of the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, China emerged as the fastest growing global economy, growing at double digits. India took a bit longer. Having gained independence in 1947, it was only in 1991, under the <coughs> prime ministership of Narasimha Rao and his finance minister, Manmohan Singh, who later was to become prime minister as well, that they took certain measures in terms of liberalizing the economy, and India started growing significantly post the 90 period. Within Brazil, you saw a great deal of difficulties in terms of finding the feet. They had 21 years of military rule from 1964 to 1985, and Brazil was struggling. It was only when they had the first direct presidential elections in 1990 that Brazil started finding the feet. But it took another five years. It was Henry Cordoso who set Brazil on the path of growth. And by the time President Lula 
took the reins in 2003, Brazil was also pumping as one of the major emerging market economies. And what about the African continent? Having spoken about India, China, and Brazil, within the African continent, of course, we were now free, having overcome apartheid as the last state under the yoke of apartheid, under the yoke of colonialism, imperialism. The African Union, the OAU could now focus its attention on the economic regeneration and development of the African continent. But in 2000, if you go back and Google, go and look at the front cover of The Economist magazine. The headline was Africa, the Lost Continent. Some 11 years later, that very same economist had a new headline on the cover, Africa, the Continent of Hope. What changed in that 11 years? South Africa was very much at the forefront of the regeneration of the African continent. President Mbeki, together with President Bouteflika of Algeria and Obasanjo of Nigeria, decided that at the 2000 OAU summit, we must go and engage the G8 about Africa's regeneration. It was Africa that introduced an outreach to the G8, because when we first lobbied the G8, Japan was the chair, I was in charge of our relations with Asia, and I was asked to, to, to speak to the Japanese. The Japanese said, no, G8 is a meeting amongst themselves, we don't speak to outsiders, we were the outsiders. But through lobbying, we were invited to the Okinawa summit later in 2008, and the three presidents went there on behalf of the OAU to say that we need your assistance in Africa's development. They said, go back and come to us the following year with a Marshall Plan. That Marshall Plan evolved into what we call NEPAC today. And President Mbeki, Botoflika, and Obasanjo <coughs> were the key authors of that. President Wade of Senegal had a parallel plan. You know, sometimes you always have these challenges within our continent. He came out with the Omega Plan. Eventually, they brought him in, made him part of the NEPAD process, and Egypt was also drawn in. So these were the five countries that were regarded as the founding countries of what is today the new partnership of Africa's development. Then we, of course, here in Durban, in 2002, transformed the OAU into the African Union, and our focus then was on continental development. Later on, we got the template of Agenda 2063. But Africa found its foot and was on a new trajectory. I'm saying all of this because even though Goldman Sachs, the chief economist, Jim O'Neill, is given credit for coining the acronym BRIC in 2000. He was influenced by several World Bank reports of 1999-2000. Following the Asian financial crisis of 1997, you had a rebound and you had robust growth amongst a number of key developing countries in the global south, which included the BRICS countries as well as several others. Indonesia was also one of those countries on the uh, watch list of, of the World Bank report. Now, I think the only reason Jim O'Neill didn't include uh, Indonesia into his equation is because Indonesia was going internal turmoil. The presidency, some 20 plus years of President Suharto was coming to an end. You had an internal uprising. Indonesia was going through a difficult uh, period internally. And therefore, I think Jim O'Neill, when he looked, ignored this country because in the World Bank report, Indonesia was also cited as one of those emerging market developing countries that were rising. So what you saw is the rise of the global south across the board, across continents. 
And this brought a new degree of uh, certainty in terms of where the Global South was moving. It was President Mbeki that put out the idea in 2000 that we can't always be led by the G7. We need, as the Global South, to create our own body. He put out the idea of a G South. And in 2001, we invited seven countries <clears throat> for a conference in South Africa that was going to take place in October 2001. I was very much part of that. Our former deputy minister, Aziz Pahad, and uh, former finance minister were tasked by cabinet uh, to be part of coordinating this. We were quite well advanced. We invited about seven or eight countries, including the BRICS countries, to converge and look at creating a GSAT body. Then we had 9-11. And 9-11 disrupted the world dramatically and impacted on the geopolitical, geofinancial, geoeconomic space and was to change the world uh, in many ways. So this idea fell by the wayside, but we picked it up in 2003 and created IPSA, the India-Brazil-South Africa Trilateral Cooperation. Uh, we felt that at least let's move forward with some creation of a block of the Global South. And there was a great deal of synergy between the three of us, so we created IPSA. We celebrate the 20th anniversary of IPSA this year. But again, that was the brainchild of President Mbeki, President Lula, who was president then. And uh, India, it, was, uh, it wasn't Manmohan Singh uh, yet, it was Gujarat. Now, if you look at the emergence of BRICS and why BRICS, Despite the fact that we have been calling for reform of the global governance architecture, the United Nations, the way it's run, because what happens today, the United Nations, if you look at the preamble, the preamble speaks about the equality of all nations and to work in harmony and live in harmony and peace with each other and not repeat the devastation that humanity experienced over the two world wars. But we have totally discarded, discarded the purposes and principles of the UN Charter. We live in a world that is still dominated by a few hegemons. Following the end of the Cold War, in December, on December 25th, in 1989, in Malta, what is called the Malta Summit, Gorbachev and George H.W. Bush met and formally declared the end of the Cold War. A year later, in 1990, East and West Germany was reunited as one country. And in 1991, Gorbachev resigned and Russia, or at least the USSR, broke up into 15 independent states. The Russian Federation was the largest amongst those. But during the period of the 90s, Russia went through a difficult period. They were trying to reorientate and find their feet, being part of the Soviet Empire and now just the Russian Federation. And Boris Yeltsin, who became president, wasn't the best of leaders. Uh, most of the time you would see Boris, I mean Russia wobbling through the decade because Boris Yeltsin was wobbling most of the time because he was highly inebriated most of the time. It was only when he left, he resigned at the end of 1999 and in May 2000, President Putin took over as president of Russia, that Russia started to find its feet and reassert itself as a major global power. And as I indicated to you, Lula came on the scene around 2003, 
China had successive President Gen Deng Xiaoping being followed by strong leaders uh, post Deng Xiaoping period, right up to the present time when you have President Xi at the reins, India having strong leadership. So in all of these countries, in a very changed Africa, you saw the rise of the Global South. And when BRICS convened first informally in 2006 on the margins of the United Nations General Assembly, at the level of foreign ministers, they decided to come together as a group of countries championing the cause, not just of the four of them, but of the larger Global South, calling for a more equitable global order. Now, why would we have to have such a configuration? Many ask the question, was BRICS founded as a counterbalance to the G7? Definitely not. BRICS was founded to create a more equitable, more inclusive, more representative, representative global order. So the foreign minister level meeting then transformed into a summit, the first summit in 2009 in Katrinaberg in Russia. And if you look at the very first summit document, it is very direct that BRICS believes in a multipolar world, a world not dominated by one or two hegemons. We do not want a unipolar world, nor do we want a bipolar world. What BRICS has been calling for from the very outset is the creation of a multipolar world where all countries of the world, North and South, BRICS is not anti-North, but the North has to work in partnership with us to create a new global architecture. And that is what was the driving force of BRICS. We were not there in 2009, and again when they met in 2010 for the second summit, in Brazil, we were not there. But internally, within what was the Department of International Relations, there was a discussion. Why is Africa not part of this block? Because we could see that this block was going to become a powerful block because it represented major countries from the global south. And we started then lobbying to say Africa must be part of this block. And South Africa, we started lobbying that we must be party to it. And at the end of 2010, as China was getting ready to assume the chairship of BRICS in 2011. We received a phone call, President Zuma received a phone call to say that they would like South Africa to become a member of BRICS. And in 2011, under, under the chairship uh, presidency of Hu Jintao, uh, who was president of China then, we attended the Sanya summit in March 2011 and became a full member. Now, why do we want to become a member of the BRICS? Of course, our foreign policy is set on five fundamental principles. Firstly, that of advancing our national interest. Secondly, that of advancing the interest of the region and the continent. Thirdly, ensuring that we strengthen South-South cooperation. Fourthly, further solidifying North-South interaction. And fifthly, ensuring that we create a more equitable global governance architecture through the reform of the multilateral system with the UN at the center. Those are the five pillars that underpin South Africa's foreign policy. Now, we felt that by becoming part of this bloc, it gives not only South Africa, but the African continent greater gravity and greater voice in terms of calling for a reshaping of the current geopolitical, geofinancial, and economic architecture. And over the past 15 years, this is what BRICS has been championing. We are fortunate now that we are hosting the summit 
for the third time, having hosted the summit in 2013 here in, in uh, Durban, 2018 in Johannesburg, and once again, now 2023. Now, with us hosting the summit, it gives us great leverage and great influence because we determine the agenda. Even though we have consultation, we are a consensus-based organization to put on the agenda what is of importance. And that is why you have seen when we were first hosting, Cabinet took a decision and said, you can't have a BRICS summit in South Africa and not champion Africa's development. So you saw that from 2013, we had a partnership in terms of Africa's development. I'm very often asked the question, do we have a mandate to speak on behalf of Africa? No, we don't. We are a sovereign African state like the other 54 member states of the AU. But in 2012, when we were preparing to go to the New Delhi summit, when India was chairing, the then chairperson of the African Union Commission, John Ping, the chairperson of the African Union, uh, Bonnie Yaya, and the chairperson of NEPAD, the late uh, Prime Minister Meles Zenawi, they signed a letter jointly to President Zuma to say when you go to the New Delhi summit, make sure that you advance the interest of the African continent. That is there in writing, where the African leadership entrusted South Africa to make sure that as part of the BRICS agenda, Africa's interests are also served. That is why in 2013, we, when we decided that we want to ensure that as part of our chairship, the African continent must receive focus. So we started the outreach. It was South Africa that started BRICS outreach, which today is an integral part of the BRICS architecture summit. We invited the African continent. At that stage, we recognized we couldn't invite the entire African continent, so we used a formula. We invited the political heads of all the regional economic communities, your SADEX, your ECOWAS, COMERSA, and so forth, your Maghreb African Union. And the head of the African Union, the political head, as well as the African Union chairperson, they all were here in Durban, and we had the first outreach. In 2018, we went a step further because in 2018, while we were chairing BRICS, we were also chair of SADC. So President Ramaphosa decided to invite the entire SADC leadership. So we invited the entire SADC leadership. And as of 2017, under China's chairship, we initiated what we call the BRICS Plus. That is, we don't only invite from within the region when we are chairing, but we invite from the global south. So in addition to the SADC leaders, we had about 10 Global South leaders that came to the 2018 summit. Again, we invited all the political heads of the major Global South bodies, like your NAM, your G77 in China, your CARICOM, your Pacific Island Forum, Organization of Islamic Conference, your Gulf Cooperation Council. So you had all of those political heads. So we used our chairship to ensure that we consolidate the BRICS platform in advancing Africa's interest but also bringing the Global South together. And I think it was this inclusive, inclusiveness of BRICS, that we are not exclusive, that we are inclusive, that we encompass and champion the interests, not just of the five of us, but the larger global community, especially the developing world, that has proven attract attractive to the Global South. And that is why you will see there is such a large interest in countries wanting to become full BRICS members. Now, last year at the Beijing summit, which was held virtually, 
The leaders decided that we need to start having a conversation on BRICS expansion. And specifically, they asked that we look at guiding principles, standard criteria, and procedure pertaining to expansion through the Sherpa track. That was what was mandated to the Sherpas in paragraph 73 of the Beijing Declaration of last year. But it was South Africa that was the first beneficiary of expansion, because as I said, it was first BRIC. We were then invited. So we, the first expansion of BRICS took place in 2011 when we became a member. So in 2018, we put a discussion paper on the table during our chairship to say, given the number of countries that are asking to become full BRICS members, shouldn't we look at expansion? But at the 2018 summit, the BRICS leaders decided that we needed to consolidate further as a grouping, and the time was not ripe for expansion. So expansion didn't take place. So China put it back on the table last year, and when we assumed the chairship in January, we have taken that process forward. We're quite advanced in that process in terms of BRICS expansion. You would have seen the number of uh, uh, reports. To date, 22 countries have formally asked to become full-time members, and informally, almost 20-plus countries have asked to become members. So at the summit this year, there will be some pronouncement on BRICS expansion. We can't avoid expansion. I think that's natural in any organization. If you look at the European Union, when they were formed in 1957, it was six countries. Today, they, the EU 27, it was 28, UK dropped out, it's back to 27. When ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations was formed in 1967, there were five founding members. Today, they are 10, they will shortly become 11 or two more Leicester joining. The Shanghai Cooperation Organization, when it was founded, were five members. Today, they just admitted Iran. At the summit last, uh, last month, they are now 10 members. So this is the natural evolution. But we also live in an age of new coalitions and new alliances, some of which make sense, some don't make sense. The strict demarcation between the global and not is now in a gray area. It's very difficult to clearly see what type of global architecture will evolve, largely because of the resistance that is still there by those that sit around the high table and think they have a privileged position, they must continue to guard that high table. Now, just to give you an idea how the world has changed, in 1975, when the G7 was formed, China's economy was $163 billion. The US economy was $1.6 trillion. So China was 10% the size of the U.S. economy. In 2022, the U.S. economy is $25 trillion. China is $18 trillion. There's about 7 or 8% separating that. It was 90% in 75, now it's 7 or 8%. India's economy was not even a billion dollars in 1975. In April this year, India overtook France to become the first, fifth largest global economy, and within the next five years, India will be the third largest global economy. Brazil and Russia ranks in the top 10 global economies. So you, you have no longer your G7 as your major global economies. There are far more powerful global economies from the global south, but yet, who still controls power in the world today? It's those that created this so-called Western liberal order that continue 
to determine what is in our best interest. But the world is changing dramatically. And President Ramaphosa has taken a very important decision for the outreach this year. Given the large number of countries asking to join BRICS and the large number of countries wanting to be at the BRICS summit, it was very difficult. I know a number of African leaders were calling him and through bilateral saying we want to be at this summit. So we were planning the proposal we put forward as officials. Let's use the same formula we used in 2013 to invite the political heads of the REC. But President Ramaphosa said no, we will invite the entire African continent to come and dialogue with BRICS. So that's what we have done. We've invited the entire African continent to be part of the BRICS, Friends of BRICS meeting that will take place the day after the summit with the BRICS leaders. But in addition, initially we invited only the political heads of the Global South, the formula we used in the past. But again, we had a large number of countries, just two days ago, two countries have written asking that they want to be invited to the summit because we have sent out invitations about a month ago. And now we have invited an additional 20 countries. So in total, 71 countries have been invited. This will be the largest gathering, largest gathering in recent time of countries from the global south coming together to discuss the current global challenges. And there is a great deal of anxiety. What's going to happen at this BRICS summit? Is there going to be expansion? BRICS now, in terms of PPP GDP, you would have seen earlier this year, has surpassed the G7. BRICS account for 31.7% of global GDP, G7 accounts for 30%. And this very same Jim O'Neill, the very same Jim O'Neill has said that by 2030, BRICS GDP will be closer to 50%. But that may come quite sooner. If we admit new members, we already account for 42% of the global population in its current format, BRICS. We account for 30% of the global mass. We account for over 20% of global manufacturing. And in terms of nominal GDP, it's over 25%. Now you can see the anxiety. This has become a powerful global force that is bringing change to the world. It's forcing change to the world. This change is not coming voluntarily. The BRICS has been the catalyst to bring about this dramatic, what you're gonna see is a tectonic change in the global geopolitical architecture, starting with the summit year in South Africa. With expansion, you're going to be accounting for almost 50% of the global population, over 35% of global GDP, and that's going to grow. You are seeing what is happened, happening at the present time. Just this morning on the news, the USA credit rating was downgraded. This morning, it was all over the news. The New Development Bank, the New Development Bank, which was created here in Durban, it was in 2013 at the Tukwini Summit that the leaders took a decision that we must create our own bank, which became the New Development Bank in 2016. They put tremendous pressure on us because we raised funds on the Western capital markets as well. Last year, they put pressure on us and made us stop any new lending to Russia, unilateral sanctions. But despite the challenges, and now we have a new dynamic president, former president of, of Brazil, Dilma Rousseff, who knows BRICS very well. She was part of the BRICS uh, formation. And she has made it very clear, we will start borrowing from diverse markets, the Middle East, Asia, and not just be dependent on one. The bank also took a decision, Sarah mentioned the issue of, of, of BRICS currency, I'll come shortly to that. Chair, you must tell me when to stop.
the bank took a decision last year in its new five-year plan that at least 30% of borrowing will be in local currencies. So we don't have to borrow for our major infrastructure projects, for our energy projects, and the NDB has disbursed about five and a half billion US dollars in terms of loans to us, including in the energy sector to ESCOM. We don't have to borrow any more in dollars. We can borrow in rand and pay in rand. And as President Lula said, As President Lula said in April when he went on a state visit to China, who decided that the dollar is God and we all must only trade in the dollar? Who made this decision in this day and age? And yet, if you look at the global trading order today, at one stage, yes, in the 70s and so forth, the USA accounted for and Europe accounted for over 50% of global manufacturing. Today, the USA's share of global manufacturing is 10%. China has a larger share of global manufacturing, a BRICS country. India's share is rising, Brazil's share is rising, and so are the other global South countries, and so is Africa. Now in Africa also, BRICS has been a catalyst for change, saying that we must trade in our local currencies. We signed an interbank agreement several years ago already to say that we must facilitate trade in local currencies, we can borrow in local currencies, and now we're looking at a payment system that we're not dependent on SWIFT, that wherever we go, we must carry a MasterCard and Visa card. We can dispense with that, create our own payment system. In order to facilitate trade in Africa and expedite inter-African trade and get from the current 16 or 18 percent, we are to 35 percent under the African Continental Free Trade Agreement. The Afri-Exim Bank has created the Pan-African Payment and Settlement System. Eight central banks and 20 commercial banks have already signed up to that. So what it means, we can trade in rands with our counterparts in other parts of Africa, and the other African countries can trade with us in their local currency. We don't have to be trading with each other in the African continent in dollars anymore. And I think this is a major game changer. <coughs> this is a major game changer. According to the African Union, using this payment system will save Africa $5 billion annually by having our own payment system. Now, just to show you, you know, very often we are, we are accused by our partners, uh, who we still regard as important partners from the global north, that our trade with BRICS and our trade with Asia and Latin America is commodity-based. Yes, that is correct, and we are addressing that in a serious way. But I want to just relate a very short story. You must tell me how many minutes I have. <laughs> that President Museveni related last week. I don't know if you've seen this, but I suggest you go on YouTube and look at the speech that President Museveni made in Moscow at the Africa-Russia summit. And he used coffee, he used coffee, and he spoke about the continuation of the economic slavery of the African continent. The annual coffee business in 2022 was worth $650 billion. The coffee producing countries' share of the trade was $25 billion. Africa's share of the coffee trade was $2.5 billion. Uganda sells coffee to Europe for $2.50 a kilo. Germany roast and process the coffee and sell it for $40 a kilo. I'm just giving you the story because Uganda of the 2.5 billion accounts for $800 million. 
of the coffee trade. The same can be said about cocoa. Between Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana, we produce 60% of global cocoa. Between, and if you add Nigeria and Cameroon to that, it's over 70% of global cocoa. Go and look at who are the largest producer of chocolate in the world today. Is there any African country there? Is there any Asian country there? This, no one speaks about. But you point fingers that we're only selling coal and iron ore and, and steel uh, to, to, to our partners in, in the global south. But they don't speak of this kind of economic slavery that we are party to. And this is what we're trying to change in the African continent in partnership with our BRICS partners to say, yes, you must change your trading pattern. President Mbeki was very blunt. I remember being in parliament sometime back, 2001, 2002. The Chinese ambassador was sitting in the gallery and President Mbeki was saying, we don't want China to come behave as a colonial power in Africa. We want a different story with you. Ambassador was very aggrieved. I told him, no. President Mbeki speaks truth to power. So you must listen what he's saying because there's a lesson for you there as we evolve this relationship with Africa. And we're saying the same to our BRICS partners. When we call them here to Africa and we create this platform for them to interact, it's about changing the dynamic in terms of the partnership we have. Because you must remember, the solidarity we had came soon after a few of the African and Asian countries got independence. The first solidarity conference, the Bandung conference, the Asia-Africa conference took place in 1955, where some of our major leaders like Kwan Nkrumah and others were in, in partnership with the newly uh, independent Asian states and African states. So the template for cooperation between the Global South goes back to Bandung, and the ANC was there. We were not in government, but Moses Kotane and Molvi Kachalia went there to champion our liberation and our cause. They met with all the delegations, including uh, Chao and Lai, who led the Chinese delegation and all of the others, to say that you must support our struggle. And they did. The Bandung Declaration was very firm in supporting South Africa's struggle. So we have this solidarity and we have an opportunity using BRICS as a catalyst to change this whole equation in terms of the global geopolitical architecture, in terms of finance, it doesn't have to be that the dollar is God anymore. If you look at current global trade, over 50% of global trade is still invoiced in US dollars, but they account for 10% of trade, as I said. We have to change that equation. And this new destiny lies in our hands as the architects of a new global order with the global south, with Africa being at the forefront and BRICS playing a catalytic role. Thank you for listening to me.